Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Participant readings are always a LitFest highlight. Anyone participating in LitFest is invited to sign up for a three to five minute reading slot. Readers are energized by adrenaline and buzz long after they've read their words to the always warm and eager to be entertained audience. The second 2012 participant reading took place on June 11, 2012, and featured more than a dozen readers. Good evening. I'm Marie Kaufman. Welcome to the second participant reading for LitFest. The first was Friday night. I have to say it went rather well. Well enough that they let me come back. (laughs) On Friday, my worldly advice to those of you who have to read tonight was old-fashioned. Imagine your audience in their underwear. That didn't go over well. So tonight I want to let you know that there are other famous people who are afraid of speaking in public. Samuel L. Jackson, which surprises me, he's so smooth, and uh, Julia Roberts, and most surprisingly, Aristotle, one of the fathers of rhetoric, and he was afraid to speak in public, so that's interesting. Um, gives you hope. And lastly, the, in the, all of the advice that I had to give, one of the things on the list was watch your body language. And I just want to tell you from experience that you should try not to gesticulate wildly when you're up here. I happen to do that. And when I taught, I used to wear my keys around my neck and I would be giving a lecture and gesticulating wildly and smack myself in the face with my keys. (laughs) Don't do that. Okay, let's get started. I feel like you can't hear me. Our first reader tonight is Jim Neely. Jim is reading from Neely's life work of poetry. He writes poetry, quatrains, and limericks. Uh, He doesn't have a clue what genre he is, but I think it's poetry. He is a mechanical engineer, worked in commercial nuclear power fields, now involuntarily semi-retired, but still working as a realtor, tax preparer, and maintenance handyman. He serves on the board and is a competitive runner in the Rocky Mountain Senior Games. He serves on the Arapahoe County Cultural Council and will be singing the national anthem for a Rockies game in July. (laughs) That doesn't sound retired to me. In his own words, he's been around for quite a while. Jim Neely. I write stuff. And it's a real privilege to have this opportunity to read some of it for you. First, perfection. Kissed by another, a wave upset the sea, sent the tide toward the strand, frothing and foaming, spuming and spraying, whore-capped, smashed into the seawall and rocks. Soothed by another, the sea subsides, retires to her deepest depths. Froth gone, foam gone, spume gone, spray gone. All's quiet, save the sound of two consonant hearts. Eternity. When my mortal form is spent, 
Burn me where I fall. I do not fear the flame. Let my ashes fall to earth or cast them toward the sea or fling them out among the clouds. Then I'll rejoin you in a drop of rain or as a wind-borne speck upon your sleeve or as a hint of color in a flower in your yard. Know always by these signs that I am with you, that my spirit dwells within you as my matter played a part in creating who you are. And you will pass it on to generations yet unborn, and they will pass it on, and on, and on. Engage, conceive, deliver, nourish, teach, and rear. Release, and let them go their ways, to live, bear fruit, then wither like the rest, with their remains reburnt, to join the cycle once again. And on, and on it goes. And on to what? what some have called eternity. Do you know? Do you know how it feels to come face to face with the fact you've been living a lie? Do you know how it feels when the person you love says the vows didn't mean a damn thing? Do you know how it feels to be told to your face that you've never really been loved? Do you know how it feels when you no longer feel? (laughs) On kissing. I've known a lot of women, and I've kissed them quite a few. Some I kissed with passion, even some I hardly knew. (laughs) And then I met the woman who was to be my wife, and kissing her with passion made great changes in my life. And as the years rolled by, and as our family grew, I still kissed her with passion and told her, I love you. But now the passion's waning and lips part much too soon. She'll kiss the dog right on the mouth, but won't let me use her spoon. (laughs) Thank you, Jim. Our second reader tonight is Anna Stahl. The name of her work is Iraqi High Tribunal Court Barbecue. The genre is memoir, narrative, nonfiction, and she was one of the last females Saddam Hussein saw before he was hung in 2006. Anna? Hello. Okay, it's hard to follow the whole spoon thing. (laughs) I don't know if the goat arrived on the tribunal compound alive, I have no experience in slaughter. By the time I saw the beast, it was carved into large chunks, roasting slowly over an open spit in the middle of the courtyard. The angular pieces of metal that held the rod over the open flame were haphazardly assembled, but it seemed to hold the weight of our meal. A young U.S. soldier sat on an upside-down five-gallon bucket and methodically turned the crank, which kept the meat from burning. He looked only at the fire, which was hot and low. Mesmerized by flame, or perhaps lost inside himself, the soldier rarely looked up. 
which each, with each turn, the unevenly skewered meat picked up speed and it flopped over to the other side like a lumpy, flat bicycle tire, adding to the monotony of it all. Freshly ground cardamom, cinnamon, and fennel wafted from the searing flesh as it combined with a sweet yet heavily billowed... I'm sorry. I'm really nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Freshly ground cardamom, cinnamon, and fennel, fennel wafted from the searing flesh as it combined with sweet yet heavy billows of cigar smoke that seeped from the open air tent just a few feet away. In the fading light of day, I watched the two plumes combine. They intertwined and drifted up the face of a stone building out into the open air, as if escaping to the world as a new aroma. It was so pleasant to be surrounded by such smells of luxury in Baghdad. It was November 2006, and November in Iraq can be cold. But the evening of the barbecue, the twilight air stood still, and the lingering sun drifted slowly behind the buildings, dragging out its warmth. The eight men on trial at the Iraqi High Tribunal sat every day under that tent in the same chairs, telling the same stories, smoking the same Cuban cigars, which were sent with a handwritten note from Fidel himself. The package came once a month, like a well-timed woman, and all eight men hedged their bets around its arrival. I was a female in a male Muslim world, female in the testosterone-soaked United States Army, and a female nurse to the most wanted criminals in all of Iraq, the ace of spades included. Joining him, Ali Ali Hassan al-Majid, notoriously known as Chemical Ali, sat feeble and weak, hardly playing the part of a devilish man capable of killing hundreds of thousands. To the left of the spit was roasting the majority of our goat, stood a small American-style barbecue grill, It was charred and oily, but the coals glowed deep red. The grill was filled with small cuts of random searing meat, which were smoky and stained dark from the spice rub. The Kurdish interpreter, known as Jim, carefully manipulated the meat as if he loved the animal as his own. An hour goes by, and the meat seems to fall apart at the touch, signaling the beginning of our feast. Side dishes of traditional Arab vegetables and grain began to emerge from igloo coolers, purchased from the local PX. The, defendant, I'm sorry, the defendants slowly extinguished their Cuban cigars on the concrete, careful not to break off what could still be smoked. At this point, I was famished. After a short conversation in Iraqi with the ace, Jim walks back to me to say, I have been instructed to enjoy a very special select cut of best part of meat. He hands me a floppy paper plate, with just one deliberately picked cut of warm, seared goat. I turn over my right shoulder and glance at the men sitting under the tent. They are all absorbed in eating, looking down in enjoyment, all but one. Saddam and I squared starely, intently at one another. In my six weeks' assignment to the courthouse, I never said one word to the man. At this moment, no words were needed. Too proud to back down, too hungry to ask questions, I popped the oddly shaped morsel into my mouth, never taking eyes out of the gaze of Saddam's. Oddly, the meat had a membrane that snapped between my my teeth, releasing a watery, salty fluid that filled the bottom of my mouth. And with that first and only bite, I knew I'd been had. No need to be nervous. It was wonderful. Next up, we have Karen Carter. 
She's reading a short story entitled Patron Saints and Sinners, and her interesting tidbit is this. Her high school marching band's visit to the wilds of San Antonio included a side trip for a handful of us brave, stupid enough to ride in a strange kid's car, she says, to some haunted ghost tracks late at night. Much high-pitched teenage screaming ensued. Karen? Um, this is an excerpt from the short story I'm working on with Anna during um, Robin Black's short fiction intensive this week, which is fantastic. It's called Patron Saints and Sinners, uh, set in San Antonio, late 1980s, a few days before Halloween. Um, I just want to give a little background. The main character, a single mom, um, is telling about the time she tried to teach her 11- and 13-year-old daughters how a local prank works. She reasons that when some boy tries to bring one of them out to the haunted tracks, hopefully when they're much older, they'll know what it's all about and won't get scared and let him make any moves that could lead to anything else. And there is no marching band in the story, so I just want to let you know that won't come out. Okay, so this is the mom talking. We drive 20 minutes, and the girls are about to doze off in the back bench seat of my Plymouth when we turn onto a dirt road that leads us away from street lights and pretty much any other sign of life. I can hear the girls shuffle around as they sit up to peer out the windows. What was your friend doing out here for crying out loud, Missy asks. I have to chuckle at that, though I'm trying hard not to giggle. I'm so nervous. I'm sure she had a good reason, I answer. Keep an eye out for her car. What color is it, and how are we supposed to see it when it's so dark out, Angel demands. White. It's really bright white. Just keep looking, would you? I spot the old railroad tracks and pull up to them, relieved no local kids are hanging out here tonight. On Halloween, this place will be packed. What are you stopping for, Missy squeaks. I can see Angel in my rearview mirror, and her glance throws me off a bit. Either she just shot me a look of awe, a look that reveals how proud she is to have such a hip mom like me who can bring her to a place she's heard of since first grade, or she's already much too familiar with this place. There have been a few sleepovers lately that could have resulted in a wild ride out to the tracks with a friend's older sister. And she's just shot me a look of utter panic at the chance I already know about her illicit escapades. <laughs> or she could just think I'm a nutcase and she's wondering yet again if she's really in the right family at all, if maybe there was a mix-up at the hospital. <laughs> I pull onto the tracks and pretend to be so surprised that I accidentally stopped the car and cut the engine. Then I turn toward the back seat. It's so dark I take out my flashlight prematurely and switch it on. The effect of the shadows it throws is actually pretty good. Uh-oh, I was afraid of that, I say. What, what, Missy cries. We're stuck on the tracks and the car just quit. Let me check something in the trunk. I throw the car into neutral and hop out. Angel's out of the car like a rocket. Are you crazy, she screeches, and that's when I realize it's starting to rain. Angel runs around the front of the car in her nightgown, fabric and braids flying as she flits in and out of the headlights beams, dodging raindrops. Then she's flinging open another door and pulling Missy out into the softening dirt. We're stuck on railroad tracks, and you want us to sit alone inside the car while you look for something in the trunk? Angel's still screeching. Perhaps she's never stopped. What in the world's in the trunk anyway? A dead body? Are you off your rocker? Missy screeches, too, at the mention of a dead body, and my inclination is to hug them both until they've calmed down enough for me to proceed. But then the car starts rolling, and we all scream, even me. The rain has picked up a bit more, too, so there we are, three scaredy cats bawling in the rain. Suddenly, I remember my plan. The ghost children, I yell. 
What? Missy screams while her sister jumps and pulls away from me. Look, I continue, the car's off the tracks and now it's stopped. There's a story about children who were killed when their bus was hit by a train on these very tracks. The children help anyone else who gets stuck. I'll show you. I march up to my car's back fender. Some of the powder has been washed away, and there's no way to sprinkle more on with the girls right with me, so I pretend to inspect the fender. I knew it. Fingerprints. Though they're mostly washed away, but really, I see fingerprints. It's the ghost children, I'm telling you. Missy begins wailing like a sick, longhorned steer, just as I lose my balance in the mud and realize my monster Plymouth is slowly moving again, this time backwards. I grab for the fender to regain my balance and stop the car, then make my way back to the open driver's side door. I get in, grab the gear shift, and throw the silly car into park, then put on the parking brake. Shaken, I rub my eyes for a minute. Then I get back out and shine the flashlight on my smiling face, beckoning for the girls to return to the safety of the car so I can explain how it all worked and we can laugh all the way home, sharing stories about how scared we were, trading jabs about who was most scared. But when Missy sees me, she screams the loudest scream I've ever heard, her round face surrounded by damp curls, contorted with fear, and falls into her sister in a dead faint. We're sitting in an examination room in an all-night clinic on the main road, not far from where we turn to go to the tracks. Fluorescent lights across the ceiling make my headache. The rain never amounted to more than an irritating sprinkle, but we're all damp and shivering in the air conditioning. Missy, who didn't hurt herself when she passed out and came to within a minute or so, is now asleep in my lap. Her sister keeps insisting I scared Missy nearly to death by streaking my cheeks, eyes, and forehead with baby powder and then throwing bizarre shadows onto my face with my upturned flashlight in the rain. I glance at the clock on the wall again, wishing someone wearing scrubs would show up already and tell me my daughter's fine. I begin to regret bringing Missy here, but all I needed was for her to suffer some bizarre side effect from passing out for less than a minute. All I need is another excuse for other parents in the neighborhood or at the middle school to talk about me behind cupped hands when they think I don't see or simply couldn't care less if I do. I study Missy's skinny knees while she dozes and sinks deeper into my numb lap. The weight of sleep seems to add another dozen pounds to her 60. I reason I'd be in bigger trouble if Angel had fallen asleep on my lap. A mother can only handle so much. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Okay, next up we have Marilyn Raff. She's reading poetry. She has three garden books published and one poetry book titled In the Palm of the Land. She has taught and wrote gardening columns and books for 25 years and now teaches reading to adults at the Community College of Denver, where most of her poems hail from. Marilyn. Until class ends. Will they settle down, not clown around, not text friends until class ends? Will they focus on the textbook, use their minds, learn new words like nerds, search, find answers? Will they study vocabulary on index cards? Too hard? Will they read stories with glorious verve? Verve, will they be less concerned about socks that match, name brand hats, sagging pants? Thank you. Thank you. Teach to the end. 
When the time arrives in teaching the disabled, the shy, the lazy, the studious, those partially blind, parolees, those out of prison, orphans, the deaf, the poor, the few well-off students, some stoned, ends, then she heads home with a slight moan, eats, gets ready for bed, rests her head on the pillow, calms rattled nerves, settles in for a good night's sleep, and prepares to repeat the day greet and serve students and her soul again and again. The Shine of Salome. Shoulder-length hair, waves of dark curls, accent straight bangs, cut jagged above her eyebrows. All frame a pockmarked face and empty eyes. Blue jeans, ragged hem, cling tightly to stilted legs. Bulky marine boots stomp painstakingly into class. Long fake eyelashes lathered black blink, hopefully. Here, the student learns, gives up her night job on the streets to chisel out an education. Thank you. This is the making of a welder. The student's deep voice resonates in reading class seems to shake walls, words like distraction and obnoxious boom from her mouth, make her stiff ponytail point outward, rise in reaction. I react too. My eyes swell with dread and horror when suddenly she blurts out an ugly story. While my twin brother was sleeping, his girlfriend stabbed him over and over with a fork in his tender throat. Blood oozed on sheets and skin. His girlfriend screamed, ran, called 911 while her hands clutched her neck. His eyeballs circles, lids shut, but he lived. Now my brother's recovered and works as a welder with hot metal, and she's locked up for attempted murder. Oh, it gives me the chills just to (laughs) read it. (laughs) Okay, this is the prison gig. Dan, the poor drug man with a little stutter, wants to stay clean, learn to spell well, thrive, study to stay alive. At the halfway house after a prison gig, he studies with a kind buddy, vocabulary words like taunted, eligible, overwhelmed, and deplorable. He comes to class every day until his brother on parole, not just another fella, needs to raise $7,000 to pay a lawyer. Just this once he can do drugs, but man, not again. He mixes meth, which he sells for coke, gets cash, and makes seven grand fast. But Dan's late to the house one night and must wash bathrooms with a toothbrush. Soon he's back with gangs at corners, forgets school matters. Um, I take a bus you know, to get to school. This one's called Normal Crazy People. She called it the party bus. The driver, in brown-suited attire, ten minutes before she departs, shares happenings with four passengers who await her departure. While smacking sunflower seeds, spitting hulls through the open door, she laughs about a rider a while back who repeatedly cawed with hands shaped like a French trumpet. 
cupped around her mouth, face pointed skyward. Outside the door, before the bus roars, a young man's song is sung. He dances around, up and down, to music he hears piped in his ears. As a fellow rider, I shake my head, chuckle, while pleased to reach normalcy as I depart the party bus and enter my house, where I live with my husband, who on a daily basis talks to God. (laughs) And... um, and this final one is called 92 and a half. 92 and a half, with his car windows wide open, the spry old man wrinkled like crunched foil, lets the sun tan his jutted out elbow. The wind ruffles his coarse white hair as he cruises along, smiles to passing clouds, people on paths, in a polished black Cadillac. Thank you. I should have took that class. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Marilyn. The world of education is such an interesting place. Next up, we have Rick Bailey. He will be reading from his play called Gibbous Moon. A gibbous moon is more than half, less than full. Rick is a lawyer, but has gotten very interested in writing, drama, and psychoanalysis. Earlier this year, he took a course on psychoanalysis in the plays of Tennessee Williams. Rick Bailey. Thanks. I'm going to read from a monologue in Act 2 of my play, Gibbous Moon. In Act 1, Josh and his friends Emma and Cleo are serving Thanksgiving dinner to homeless people at a cathedral soup kitchen. Josh reveals that he was homeless for a year or two when he was a teenager, and Cleo and Emma are very surprised and inquisitive, but supportive. In Act 2, on this cold Thanksgiving night, Josh is walking home alone, probably on a street very near where we are right now. There's an alley with a dumpster, And Josh turns to the audience and says, that is Stillborn Alley. Lots of bodies in there the past 150 years. Men, women, babies, homeless. Denver was the Wild West, not as wild as Leadville in the 1870s. We were civilized down here. But men would shoot each other over nearly anything or over nearly nothing. After the Civil War, a great tsunami of humanity washed over the plains right up to the foot of these mountains. And then, at the slightest rumor of gold or silver, the wave rushed up the canyons and over the mountain passes. Georgetown, Central City, Cripple Creek, Creed, Leadville. Boom and bust. The quick and the dead. Broken men and women. And always, always, the homeless. I was nothing special, just another homeless kid, 16-year-old kids on the street, a dime a dozen. Sometimes in winter, I would hang out in the parking lot by the supermarket. If I could, I would get close to the door to stay warm and beg. They would feel guilty, such a vast treasure of food, and here's this poor kid. But I could see the fear in their eyes. 
the calculus. Could they trust me? Shame. I felt it when they asked. They felt it when they refused. I knew a homeless woman with a baby. She was so ashamed of begging that she told people she was stranded. She and the baby always dressed pretty, and she would only approach people who were also well-dressed. She would say, I'm so sorry to bother, but I've lost my purse. I need money for gas to get home. It always worked. People want to help their own. One day, this woman approached a couple at an ATM machine in the mall. Would you believe a guy was standing there who'd given the woman money just a week before? He was outraged and told her so. You're a fake, a fraud, and so's your baby. He told the couple, she's a bad bet, don't get taken in, and they, they fled. I always wondered what that guy gained. Justice, revenge, a hungry baby? I was too naive to make up a scam and too hungry to care. Damn the shame, I just begged, and mostly they refused. Mostly, I was invisible. But when people gave, well, that was a kind of redemption. Some people gave even when they were afraid. If they were brave like that, I would go into the store after them and make sure they would see me buy food, and they would know that they had done some good. Other people were far beyond fear, another species altogether. They looked at me, not through me. They asked my name. They asked how they could help. You could see that they lifted people up. Thanks. Thank you, Rick. Okay, next up we have Rich Erla. He's going to read an Italian sonnet and an excerpt from the prologue first chapter of Connections, his new creative nonfiction novel. Here's this fun fact. As an eighth grader, Rich made it to the finals of the Colorado-Wyoming Spelling Bee, but was eliminated when he misspelled the word dissipate. The next morning, he was horrified to wake up to a picture of him biting his tongue printed on the front page of the Rocky Mountain News. You want to see the expression? That's something close anyway, and I can't believe you were t- had your <laughs> camera ready. Um, starting with something lighter and something truly exciting, uh, there's a new journal that David Rothman and company have, are just putting out called Don't Just Sit There, and the poem I'm going to read is from that. Uh, this is kind of a teaser where if you can come to the, uh, the book fair on Saturday, all the authors in here, there are 20 poems, will be reading from it, and uh, there's some fantastic, fantastic people in this, and uh, kudos to David, and uh, a num- two of the assistant editors are also here, but uh, think about Don't Just Sit There. This is called Raw Tomato Love. You tease me while you sunbathe, plump and firm. (laughs) So hot to be my marinara sauce or cool gazpacho. I would love to toss you in a salad if 
no early worm has penetrated your pulp, you... (coughs) You red floozy. Your curvy contours please my naked eye. I've longed to pluck you off the vine and fry you green and greasy, but I'm sort of choosy. Ah, please don't pout my Rubenesque nightshade. (laughs) I knew you could enhance my lycopene level from that first hungry time I looked. I can't consume your pristine flesh pureed, or molded in some aspic for the queen. But I will taste your virgin skin uncooked. (laughs) This is either the prologue of this creative nonfiction or chapter 46. <laughs> but I started at this chapter one, so I'm, I think I'm sticking with that. No drugs. I said I don't want any drugs, she pleaded as she felt the sharp point of the needle enter her restrained arm. I want to see my baby. I want to hold my baby just for a little while. Another powerful contraction pinched the rosy features of her china doll face into a grimace. Tears rolled across her cheeks and temples, glistening like small baguettes when they came to rest against the wisps of brown hair protruding from what felt like some sort of shower cap they had put on her head. Really, it's better this way, said a muffled voice from behind one of the indistinguishable surgical masks looming over her. We're giving you something called twilight sleep. It will help you to forget and move on with your life. Just just try to relax and we'll take care of everything else. She shook her head and tried to fight, to get up and run, but was too weak or the message wasn't getting through to her limbs or the lights were too bright or the sounds were suddenly too loud. Count backwards with me from 100, Beatrice, a different male voice said. Ready? One hundred. Ninety-nine. I'm not Beatrice, she said, trying to correct the clerical error that had transposed her first and middle names on her chart. Why are you doing this? I want my baby. I just want to hold my baby. I'm sorry, Mama. Where's Joe? Please don't do this. Help me. Her head rolled from side to side, and the needle now felt huge within her vein, and she feared she might bleed to death, or the needle had been in too long and wouldn't ever come out, and the lights were so bright, and it made her arms so cold, and she just wanted to hold her baby, and was it a boy or a girl, and who would it look like, and oh God, the muscles of her abdomen were like knotted ropes suspended between two sailboats in a hurricane as the next contraction hit, so how the hell could they say to relax? 92, 91, 90, 89. She began to feel warm and thought for a moment that she was back at the glorious weekend they had shared in Provincetown, taking in gulps of the gentle breezes in what artists called the exquisite light. But she knew that she couldn't go to sleep or these people would take her baby. 
Somehow, she could feel the anesthesiologist pulse through the syringe, and the buzz of the lights was like a squadron of giant dragonflies. But what would dragonflies be doing in a hospital? Were they there to feed on unseen swarms of blood-sucking mosquitoes like those that appeared each summer back home in the land of 10,000 lakes? No, she told herself, you've got to fight it. You've got to stay awake and meet your baby. Please stop. Please help me, she whispered between panicked but slowing breaths. Don't take. I know he's going to be here. Every emotion, every endocrine message, every foreign chemical in her system coursed through the baby, crowning between her legs, which, though secured to the stirrups, quietly tried to flutter like a dying moth in the grasp of a praying mantis. 84. Thank you, Rich. I think we have some salsa back there that that has tomatoes in it. (laughs) Next up is Jan Erickson. Jan is writing a novel of literary fiction. The working title is Chaos in Theory. Jan has a KGB file, and she's pretty sure the opening entry in it documents her telling a caller to her hotel room in Warsaw that I am a flashlight in Polish. She always figured that she was the only room mother of her daughter's school classes who had a KGB file, but then you never really know. She went to the Soviet Union nine times in the 1980s. It was never boring. She does have stories, for example, one entitled, I Bought My Spy an Ice Cream, which is in the book she's reading from. Jan? First, an epigraph from the poet Adrian Rich. She, Marie Curie, died a famous woman, denying her wounds. Denying her wounds came from the same source as her power. I come to Poland because nobody here wants to kill me. My retort pops out automatically. I snap the comment across the table at Christoph, but it boomerangs back at me with a resonant power that takes my breath away. A deflection. I am wicked good at that. But this isn't it. This is no snarky sarcasm, no exaggerated wisecrack. This is the truth. No one here wants to kill me. Neither one of us knows what to do with my answer. You have some bloody nerve coming back here after all you did. Chris has accused me a moment before. His manner is blunt, pressing. Carolina, Charlotte, Alexandra, Lind, bloody effing bats, woman. What are you doing here? Why are you here after all this time? 
This is not your place. Seriously, what in the sweet love of God are you doing here? He spits out the words in Polish. I understand him perfectly. Nobody here wants to kill me. Whoa. It has been only two years, two years since Duncan tried to kill me. Two years, but it seems like my whole life. I've become a different person. They say that can happen. Not in a good way. My name is Carolina Charlotta Alexandra Lind, and I used to be normal. Well, as I told my daughter Grace, normal being a relative term. You can't say I hadn't been warned. Don't go out alone at night, cat, a neighboring colleague warned. Don't ever go over to the church by yourself. Never be there when it is empty. Watch your tail. And sure enough, a month before the end, and why I did not decide then that I had had enough, I do not know, except that I am a Lind, and we never give up. I was driving home from the hospice around midnight, one of my final visits with a sparkling young woman dying of brain cancer, her husband and children struggling to let go. I stayed late to talk with Melody after her family left. My trip home had taken me past the church building where lights were on in the conference room and cars remained in the parking lot. I stopped in, curious, only to halt an animated conversation in its tracks. The usual suspects. Ursula was there, and Marvin, and Paul, and Ken, and Joe, and Eleanor, and Doyle, and even Jared, who had moved away. I asked if I could be helpful, if I could join them. No, no, not at all. We were just chatting. It, it got late. I had three routes I could take home from there. I had been encouraged by colleagues and friends to vary my pattern, and so that night I chose one I had not used for a week or two. My mind was lost in the sadness of Melody's dying, and the mystery at the church was swirling in the mix of my thoughts as I made a left turn, then a right, then down a long stretch that was straight, and at that hour of night deserted. The stoplights on this main thoroughfare were not blinking red or yellow, but still following their normal pattern of turning red, then green. I stopped at the red light near home. My thoughts on Melody, would she die tomorrow? Would her husband be up to the task of being a single parent? When a terrifying crunch of metal and a violent pitch of my car thrust up against the guardrail, shattered the peace. The airbag exploded against my face. My forehead felt like it was hit by a bag of wet cement, and it punched me off the seat of my Jeep into the armrest of the other seat, then onto the floor in between, twisted around, my head fallen back. 
That is how the paramedics found me, my fastened seatbelt snapped off. I don't remember anything else about the crash itself. I found consciousness only briefly as my body was contorted around the seat by the EMTs and taken out through the crumpled door. I was secured on a backboard. I had wrenched muscles, a broken wrist, gashes and contusions, and a bad concussion. She needs the hospital. There's blood from this head wound. Her back is spasming. Let's get moving. Dim memory. Unbearable pain. Everywhere, I passed out again. I was loaded into an ambulance on a backboard and taken to the emergency room, lights flashing. I came to a shocking reminder of childhood trauma as the siren stirred something deep in my memory bank and my eyes opened long enough to register the harsh brilliance of overhead lights and the cold, hard, sleek steel all around. Beeping of monitors and the hiss of oxygen summoned up something from the distant past, and I shivered in vague awareness of ancient hurt. It is unbelievable how much it hurts to be fixed. Thank you, Jan. Next up, we have Rodney Bell. He's reading a nonfiction essay slash memoir entitled Old Goat, Young Pup. Born in Alabama and determined to die in Colorado, this 52-year-old PR consultant and university lecturer has summited 35 14ers, visited 32 countries on seven continents, skydived thrice, run the bulls twice, bungee jumped in New Zealand, white water rafted with some Zambezi, crocodiles, dodged Mozambican landmines, and survived one very personal encounter with a lightning bolt. Nothing, however, as daunting as this first public reading. Rodney. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to read an excerpt from... uh in the setup, it compares two life events for me, one as a childhood involving an abandoned stray dog, and the other when I lived in Africa involving a highly prized uh, goat. So the second goat for tonight. <laughs> How long would he draw this out? I disliked the hospital's atmosphere of terminal waiting. Darlington's interpretation, filling the room with his lyrical voice, took several minutes. I attempted to analyze expressions and tones. The old man shifted hip to hip and clawed at the fly with a hand resurrected from his lap. He coughed, another shovel of congestion rattling his chest. His raw nose flecked dead skin and dried mucus. My legs shook impatiently and rapidly, just like a puppy's when its belly is scratched. A jabbering woman careened into the room. The old one's wife boasted large breasts and significant posterior, her body draped in a green, red, and black mosaic that Zimbabwean women prized. A headscarf turban wrapped her brow. She scampered to the bed and roosted at the foot, shaking her head and clucking sadly. Darlington smiled at me, blinking behind his glasses. This man is his village's oldest father. 
He has many sons and daughters. I recall that goats were a form of currency given as a bride price to purchase a wife. Zimbabwean fathers parlayed daughters into goats to be traded, eaten, or milked to death. This mention of children signaled a shift in negotiations. I pulled up a metal chair and sat down. What do I need to do to settle up, I bleated. Deflecting my tone, Darlington's words consoled the husband and wife. Five dollars and return the goat to my home so my family can skin and eat it. I'll give four dollars and leave the goat here, I responded. I did not want to retrace strange and scrubby terrain after nightfall. The odds of more hit and runs increased after dark and could include humans. His wife, staring vacantly at the floor, took up the chant. This goat was special abola paid for our oldest daughter. A very fine goat, the old man chimed in. We had him many, many years. Maybe I put him out of his misery, I thought. Brother Rodney, this man thinks the goat is worth more money, and he wishes you to transport it to his home. Darlington's gentle admonishment reminded me of my temporary status as an aid worker. I represented God, Ronald Reagan, and Western benevolence, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> He's trying to take advantage of me, Darlington. Why else put up a fight? I directed my voice at him and my gaze at the old man, who locked me in the corner of his eyes where syrupy age and illness stagnated. Your family is here at the hospital. Eat the goat here. Take the goat back and give me five dollars. How can we take it back? We have no truck, the missus wailed. Between the old man's hoarse demands and his wife's howling embellishments, the patient in the adjoining bed bellowed, I will skin the goat for a slice of meat. Great, someone else wanted a cut of the action. Five dollars and I leave the goat here. I hoped Darlington was not wearing of me as he volleyed my bartering, bartering back and forth. Outside, the sky dimmed in a drawn-out sunset that characterized equatorial dusk, pulled across the sky like a sheet over a body. Darlington's patience kept his voice low, but he grew more animated as his translations of my few words grew longer. I trusted that he was covering me the best he could. I will skin the goat, croaked the dried-up remnant across the room. Darlington, five dollars is my final offer. The old man's head nodded to one side. His voice held, despite a gurgle of phlegm, and evaporated lips cracked a dry smile. You must take it to my home. Do not bring that animal into this house. Mama wiped flour-dusted hands on her apron as cut okra spit and sizzled in a skillet. I retreated from the back door and deposited the burlap sack on the concrete carport. What are we going to do with him? The dog's head lolled to one side, half out of the sack. We're not going to do anything with him. Your father won't be home until late, and I'm in the middle of fixing supper. She walked over to the wall phone and dialed her neighbor. I lingered on the steps, the dog sniffing my heels. Mom reappeared, framed in lemon-colored kitchen light. Carry him over to Nancy and Carl's. Carl can take care of him. Why can't I take care of him? Mother misunderstood. I don't trust your aim. My face reddened. I cuddled the little fellow across a harvested cornfield. Forgotten husks crinkled beneath each step. A sandstone sun slumped upon a patch of dusty horizon. Tall in his yard, Carl waited with the trees. My steps slowed as I approached his property line. Finally, I crossed over and laid the dog at Carl's feet. Next to the thin, hard man's boots lay a still, cold, gray object. My eyes lifted from the hammer to Carl's granite face. The barely living raised his head and whined once.
Thank you, Rodney. Next up, we have Candice Reed. Candice is a screenwriter, story analyst, writing teacher, and the author of the handbook Shaping True Story into Screenplay. She is also a nonfiction writer and will be reading the beginning of an essay called It's All Relative. This recently won an honorable mention in the New Millennium Writings Winter Contest. Candice. I just I had to say that about the award because it's actually my first award I've ever won in my whole life. <laughs> Kinship is a slippery thing. One night during dinner, our seven-year-old asked whether his teenage step-cousins, once removed, were in our family. And to my dismay, my husband responded, not really, while I firmly stated yes. I had no doubt that my teenage step-cousins were my relatives, albeit by marriage, since they are the granddaughters of my grandmother's third husband's daughter. (laughs) But once the scrutiny of kin began, the quicksand of questions kept pulling me deeper. I began to wonder about my hodgepodge of step-and-half-relatives thousands of miles away. Did their removals by marriage and divided ancestry make them less valid? What I needed was not just proof that our children could claim these people as their own. I also needed a more solid definition of family for myself. Merriam-Webster defines family as a group of people living under one roof and or peoples deriving from a common ancestry and also a group of things related by common characteristics such as related plants or animals forming a category ranking above a genus and below an order or a unit of a crime syndicate as the mafia operating... (laughs) Within a geographical area, now we're talking. (laughs) To me, family is an abstract. Family can consist of friends you've had since you were young or people who've taken you in, such as my Aunt Irene, who I have always called Reen. I spent all my Christmas, Easter, and summer vacations in her sprawling North County San Diego home until I went to live with her when I was 12. She's the grandmother of the teenage step-cousins our son was wondering about. And there's not a drop of blood between us, but we finish each other's sentences, get each other's jokes, and know how to heal each other's wounds. What I remember most about going to stay with Reen when I was a child is her unwavering devotion to my happiness. I experienced this in the form of jack-in-the-box french fries dipped in chocolate shakes, alfalfa sprouts growing on the kitchen counter, and long drives out to avocado orchards to just grab a few. I felt it watching old Shirley Temple movies in her king-size bed when my uncle was away on business, opening immense boxes of crayons at Christmas, and hearing her whisper in my ear when it was time to say goodbye, a kiss and a peck and a hug around the neck. Every May, my husband and I and our two children drive down to southern Colorado for my husband's family's annual Memorial Day celebration. His father and uncle and all of their children, children's spouses and grandchildren, also make the pilgrimage to a centuries-old cemetery set into a plateau of East Spanish Peak along the South Santa Clara Creek. On the very land where my husband's father was born, they break out the work gloves, unload a mower off someone's trailer, and proceed to clean the graves of all their ancestors. Picture a pristine mountain mesa and a small square patch of grass covered in granite headstones, dozens of which are inscribed with the name Reed, bits of semi-destroyed pink and purple plastic flowers strewn about. The sign above the white metal gate reads Thomas Rogers Cemetery, 1895. Craggy peaks rise in the background, and multiple Ford trucks and SUVs are parked in the grassy meadow nearby. After the mowing and weeding around the graves is done, 
We all rest in our folding chairs and eat ham sandwiches and homemade chocolate chip cookies. Over time, I've come to feel almost accepted at this ritual, as my husband's relatives always show genuine interest in how things are going and toss out an extra pair of gloves for me to use. I get misty-eyed each time our own Ford starts up the 10-mile, deeply rutted road to the top. I long to be a part of such strong lineage, and I feel gratitude as wide as the Sangre de Cristos that our children have this powerful tradition. But no matter how many irresistible reed offspring I have borne, I know that I will never truly belong here, simply because I can't relate. My husband comes from a certain stock, like cattle, and no one outside the family bloodline can ever really be considered part of the clique. It's exclusive and particular. It's about growing your own food, cooking from scratch, and tending your acreage into your 80s. It's not that they won't accept non-blood relatives into the fold. On the contrary, the more time passes, the more I am treated with the same level of warmth as any of them. But when the conversation turns to putting up raspberries and castrating lambs, this city girl just doesn't fit in. (laughs) On the drive down to the cemetery last year, I learned that my half-sister Linda, whom my mother gave up for adoption at birth years before I was born, and who I only found out about when I was 32 was concerned because her sister Penny, the woman my sister grew up with in her adoptive parents' home, was in the hospital. "'What's wrong, Mom?' our son asked after I gasped at a text on my phone. "'My sister's sister is in the hospital.' "'Your sister's sister? That's your sister!' he insisted. "'Hmm, I'm not sure. Maybe,' I said, as my husband also faintly shook his head. "'Definitely,' our son said, and I envied his certainty.'" <laughs> I don't think that you should be sad about not being included in the castration of the lamb. (laughs) Okay, next up we have Marie Osterello. She's reading poetry. Marie hasn't... The other Marie, not me, has an MFA in fiction writing from Vermont College, but also writes poetry. This is her interesting note. Marie says, things have taken a turn for the better, and she's decided to live. I had a rough couple of years during the recession, so <laughs> as this first poem will convey. Another ordinary week. Just last Tuesday, I contemplated the confounding airbag that if my Subaru Outback, a 2005 model, say, would be driven off a cliff with intent, I would most likely survive, unfortunately maimed and become even unhappier than I am now. I would need an older vehicle for that deed, a 1997 maybe, before everyone started trying to protect me from myself. (laughs) I imagined signing titles, relinquishing my heated leather seats, trading for something modest, rust setting in, loaded with high potential for metal compression. An old Hyundai might do the trick, Yesterday, I met nine-year-old Sammy, who fidgeted next to me on her father's couch. Her lisp, her slipping purple glasses, arms and legs, all a wonder of movement gone awry. And no, no nuns at St. Benedict's, but there is an Eric, and an Erica, and an Emily, and the metric system, and look, look at all of her less-than and greater-than calculations. 
She needed a nanny to drive her to and from school every day. I considered my trusty airbags, front and side, grateful, and pictured myself rambling under the speed limit in the right lane, book bag shotgun, little girl buckled in behind me, gabbing, my chest, this heated rubbing of sticks. I'm contemplating leaving my longtime boyfriend, as many men I know are adult children returning home temporarily. It's something, always something, that drives us to this ledgy place of decision. Last night I searched the internet for children to adopt. A nine-year-old girl might be nice, my body flaming with purpose and air. Today I woke up and had a cup of coffee, two eggs, my usual. This is um, a Shakespearean sonnet. I haven't written a sonnet since I was 20 years old. And I took a class with Jake Adam York, so tried my hand at it. It's called Ink. Come spill your ink on me, this page, Sunday blank, paper left at my door without print, pulp of wood, excuse me, Pulp of wood, stricken white, craving lay of letters, spoon of C and E, spread stripped. Embedded under your skin, a wolf thrusts its throat to the sky, howling for its mate, or its moon, or its cave, or its lost, just to be heard, pools there still and starless lake. Cut your wrist, prick your arm, Leech what canine needles captured decades ago. Release this exiled beast, this lone self, and be mine in the immediate midnight. Find peace. Then I will drink of you, gulp, head thrown back, phrases forming, revel in the black. This is all awkward. heard of that darn thing. This is called Dog Toy. We have in common a tennis ball, a gooey, fuzzless head. Its glow in the darkness dimmed with dirt. Or maybe, from his point of view, the wondrous limey orb, the tempting Macintosh apple, the rabbit's neck so soft in the teeth. He gives it to me with trust that it will come to life again, will bounce its frantic geometry through the house until caught, cushion in his mouth, maybe safety blanket or wolf dog trophy. Either way, his jaws do not let go at once. He has even adapted his growl and bark around it. This chewy amusement, the taste of squirrel he can only imagine. Thank you, Marie. Oh, now it's short. Okay. Our next reader is Dane Zeller, 
who will be reading two flash fiction stories from his anthology, Drive-By Romances, Blind Dates Gone Wrong. (laughs) This collection began at a lighthouse workshop with Mario Acevedo two years ago. Dane. I come from Kansas City, and uh, I come out here to avoid the humidity and the long, miserable Kansas City Royals losing streaks. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Now, a couple years ago, I had a class with Mario, and uh, there was a writing prompt uh, that I wrote uh, for five minutes, and I'm going to read it to you. I polished it up a little bit in the meantime, but uh, maybe there, you know, if my reading uh, or my fiction falls a little flat tonight, there might be a little mystery in, as to who's to blame, huh? <laughs> <clears throat> Three's a crowd. Carlos dropped a tip in the jar for the bartender. He grabbed his beer and turned to go back to the table. But there was Arlene. He shifted his eyes to the left and then to the right. And then he made eye contact. He could not escape. He could not escape. Arlene looked directly at him. Nice hair, he said. (laughs) Nice hair? Nice hair? Is that all you have to say to me after telling me you'd call me one morning four years ago? (laughs) I like your outfit. Arlene reached into her jeans jacket and pulled out a pistol. (laughs) Carlos could not identify the brand of the weapon by looking straight down the barrel. (laughs) You carried that gun with you for four years? (laughs) Carlos's eyebrows reached for his hairline. Don't flatter yourself, Buster. She raised her aim to the side of his right ear and pulled the trigger. Carlos fell to the floor. He checked for bullet wounds and then looked at the woman next to him. It was Mary Lou, spread out dead on the floor, a butcher knife in her hand. He remembered he hadn't called Mary Lou after their hot date two weeks ago. (laughs) Thanks, Arlene, Carlos said. Arlene blew the smoke from the end of her gun. Call, Call me, she said. We like you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. The second one is so, Mario, well done. (laughs) Uh, The uh, second story is a dinner time story. Sally sat at the dining room table set for two. The candles were out and cold. The clock showed 7.39. The smell of meatloaf was nearly gone from the kitchen. She heard the garage door open and shut, and then Bob came through the door lugging his briefcase. Hi, honey, he said as he sat down at the table, bypassing the usual welcome home kiss on Sally's cheek. Sorry I'm late. Wayne was in a real funk. He asked me to go down to Clancy's for a brew. I couldn't let him down. He needed to talk. Bob took a sip from the wine glass. 
I know you're go- you've gone out of your way to prepare supper. Thanks for waiting. She smiled as she relit the candles. No problem, Bob. I'll just warm it up. Also, it's happy hour at Clancy's. Two for the price of one. I knew you'd appreciate the savings. (laughs) I thought that was on Tuesdays. Bob hesitated. No, it's tonight. What's up with Wayne? Same old thing. He's worried about losing his job. He's got a high house payment, three car payments, and he's missing quotas. He's missed projections the last three months. Three months? Last time I talked to Frida, it was seven months. Bob looked down at his tie that was stuffed into his shirt pocket. The tail end of the tie was hanging out. Well, maybe it's a guy thing. He can't tell the whole truth about his failure. To to top it off, Frida and the kids bought a little dachshund puppy that pees all over the carpet. How cute. He'll outgrow that. She, it's a she, and she's been peeing for six weeks. And I think they only have two cars. Bob stuffed his tie back into his pocket. What do you mean? You said he had three car payments. Oh, two, three, it doesn't matter. Maybe he was just embellishing his story. You know how depressed people get. Not exactly, Bob. And a high house payment? Frida told me they inherited enough to almost pay outright for that mansion. Hmm, he was obviously blowing up his story. Bob, did you buy a new cologne? Uh, no, yes, I did. (laughs) I can still smell it at the end of the day. I was just wondering. Yeah, it's called Etu Flore. I got it it down at the CVF. You mean CVS. CVS, yes. Also, I don't think they've had that dog for six weeks. More like three weeks. I've lost track, Bob, from the glass of ice water. Perhaps the large amount of moisture on the outside of the glass caused his grip on the glass to be uneasy. What's her name? What? What's her name? Bob picked up the salad fork. A bead of sweat rolled down his forehead. Her name? Yes, Bob. Oh, honey, I was going to tell you. Her name is Michelle, and she invited me to a harmless lunch, and I didn't see the problem. But she came on to me. I'll never do it again, honey. It's over. I said goodbye at Clancy's tonight. She was just a fling. The sex meant nothing to me. I love you so much. (laughs) Bob, I meant the dog's name. (laughs) He put the fork down next to the knife, but not exactly parallel to it. Oh. Thank you, Dane. Okay, our next reader is Andrea Doray, and here's a little bit about Andrea. She is a one-time mountain bike racer. That is, she raced one time. She was also named Cook of the Week, although the series was discontinued after her feature. (laughs) I feel your pain. Andrea is a published poet and has a weekly opinion column in several Denver suburban newspapers. She is also a feature writer with USA Cycling for their national publications and recently rode the Velodrome track in Colorado Springs to write a personal experience feature about how speed defies gravity. She's going to read poems from her new collection, Adjust Your Own Mask First. Andrea. 
Good evening. Unencumbered. When I became a butterfly, it was because I was unencumbered. No obligations to home or health or happiness of someone else. I saw unencumbered stretch before me, beckoning as the warm, free wind of desires once deferred. I sensed unencumbered first tap my shoulder so lightly that as I turned, nothing was there. I helped unencumbered unpack in my guest room and tiptoe around at night a glimmer of potential. I watched unencumbered Sleep through the years. Another. The holidays. Another. Illness. A death. And a death. I watched unencumbered. Understanding what it means to be consumed. Not by fire, but by a single silkworm. I felt unencumbered, tighten around my torso, deciding when I would breathe. Layers of wisp tangled up from my feet to become my cocoon. When I became a butterfly, it was because only unencumbered waited for me. Adjust your own mask first. If you are thinking you have nothing left and everything to you feels lost, try learning to draw breath, a habit you don't practice yet, while living with your fingers crossed. If what you're thinking you have left is nothing but your toil and sweat, You're only counting up the cost of learning to draw breath and sealing places where you've bled before your wounds are washed. You think that you have nothing left and fall without a safety net. So if what you had is being tossed, why learn now to draw a breath? You're losing all that you forgot. Your rolling stone has come to moss. Just when you're thinking nothing's left, you're learning to draw breath. (laughs) Universe Unleashed. Maria comes back to fetch her little dog, who was tied up to the tree for all these years. Stooping, she reaches across the decades 
and scratches the little dog around his tufty face. Larger than she remembered, the little dog has fur that reaches far past the ground. Smaller than she remembered, the little dog is scruffy, woody, thorny. Time, in this case, is not measured in the years of the little dog. The time of Maria is the time she left the dog behind. I have known this since the beginning of the universe. And the little dog takes off the collar of the hollow years. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, our final reader for tonight is Susanna Donato, and she will be reading from her memoir in progress, Crush. It's about boys and rock and roll and becoming a woman. She has n- <laughs> she has not decided yet. She has not yet decided which was more important along the journey, boys or music. <laughs> But if anyone has Jack White's phone number, please see her after the reading because she'd like to discuss this with him. But please don't tell her husband that she said that. Susanna. Hello. Um, So this is an excerpt from my memoir, In Progress, which um, looks at a series of relationships basically chronologically and this is um, an abridged version of the, the very first chapter that's quite new and it's called Kiss. Maybe we were grabbing swimsuits to take to a swimming party or maybe we were about to be dropped off at the babysitter we shared. All I remember is what I saw when I walked into Tim's bedroom. Here was the hitherto unknown impetus for the swagger with which he filled up his size 6X tough skins jeans and his plaid flannel shirts, his off-brand sneakers bought at Alco. Above the bed, four white-faced rebels leered in black and silver-studded spandex suits, their shiny black hair feathered as perfectly as Farrah Fawcett's. In the center, lunging forward, was a man who looked like Batman had branded his face. I would not know for many years that this was Gene Simmons. His devil horn hand thrust into what I suspected was an obscene gesture. His outstretched tongue seemingly hanging to his knees. Wake up, dummy. Tim waved his hand in front of my face. I said, let's go. What? I could scarcely harness the power of speech. I gestured to the poster. What? That? Tim knocked his shoulder against mine as he shoved past me. That's kiss. I staggered out behind him to rejoin our mothers on the front lawn. Their chatter went on and on like the buzz of the bees in the limp petunias by the porch. I leaned against my mother's hip. Mama's fingers gravitated to my hair, trying to perk it up as the women talked. I'd begged for the latest style, a Dorothy Hamill wedge, hoping the haircut would make me spunky and cute. But my fine red hair hung limply like an overturned bowl of barbecue sauce. (laughs) Mama took my lack of flair as a personal affront. Cringing beneath the annoyance radiating from her fingertips, I closed my eyes. On the inside of my eyelids, I could just make out the seared image of what I'd seen, rock and roll. I began to notice more about Tim, who'd asked me to call him (laughs) T-Bone. The twinkle in his eyes, 
the road rash scabs on his careless elbows, the way he threw his hair out of his face and swore freely, emitting dangs and craps with abandon. <laughs> I didn't yet want him exactly, but I wanted something about him. I wanted the lithe boy body that pedaled his BMX bike standing up, the frame waving side to side beneath his furious legs. Maybe this pre-sexual feeling was akin to grown-ups yearning that makes them say they want to gobble a baby up. I could already tell that to a grown-up, T-bone was the opposite of gobbleable. <laughs> but I wanted to devour him, to consume him like Alice in Wonderland's wafer, to see how lapping up him or his boyness might transform me. Finally, I figured out what to do. It came to me one morning while I worked on a whole new pack of social studies SRA cards. At lunch, I went through the hot lunch line with my friend Karen, the other redheaded girl in my class who I only sort of liked. <laughs> T-Bone ate a sack lunch, jostling with the other boys, trading tuna salad for bologna and ding-dongs for peanut butter cookies. I kept an eye on him as I nibbled my chicken fried chicken and canned peach halves, watched him over my fingers as I slurped my milk, trying to ignore the sour, papery smell that quickly accumulated in the soggy lip of the half-pint carton. After we ate, we first graders marched up the long flight of steps from the basement cafeteria outside to our own playground. The girls dragged out striped ropes to start jumping. The boys lined up to shove each other down the slide or play softball. I pretended to work at a knot in the jump rope, but I watched T-Bone as he stood in line to bat. My heart thumped. I couldn't stand it anymore. What I knew from swimming was his almost concave white chest, his flat nipples, his ribs sticking out in his pale belly, the freckles across his nose. <laughs> I bent down and retied the maroon and white lace of my Buster Brown shoe. I knew I was ready for something bigger. I tied my shoes seriously with no silly rhymes about bunnies, and I had taught, <laughs> I had taught my two-year-old sister to do the same. I stood and smoothed down my shirt, and then I ran. I ran across the playground to where the boys stood, twining their fingers in the chain-link fence, waiting their turn. I ran right up to T-Bone, stopped, and looked him in the eye. I put my hands on his shoulders, leaned forward, and kissed him on the cheek. I pulled back and looked at him again. Ha, I said. I could feel the hot blush bleeding into my cheeks. Hey, he yelled. I ran away before I could get in trouble. The other boys saw me do it. They were watching T-Bone, ready to follow his lead. I don't think any of them had a kiss poster on their walls either. He took his palm and slowly pulled it down his cheek, then wiped it on the chest of his plaid shirt. He stared at me the whole time. Then he looked away. What was that for? Karen asked me. I did it, I told her. I did it. Thank you, Susanna. It took a lot of guts. It took a lot of courage for everybody to read tonight. Let's give everyone a round of applause. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.